Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. My name is Brian Sobolewski and I am your host. Welcome to episode 13, The Bad Feelings. Uh, Ain't no good news in this episode. Um, There's news and uh, I finally heard from the medical examiner's office over in Trinity, Florida. After they decided that they wanted to do a autopsy and uh, blood work on both Dad and Kev, there were questions. There were questions. There were questions. There were questions. And I want to back up because I want to tell you uh, how these questions arose and and why, at that point, they decided to do. The autopsy and the why the autopsy took as long as it does and why it's absolutely outrageous that the news is allowed to report anything, that anybody is allowed to report anything or that anybody even makes a guess at what happened in that house on that day. Now, I had reported to you guys that it appeared that my father shot my brother and that in and of itself raised uh, or opened a floodgate of my mind just working over how how a father makes that decision and, and is it possible for me to ever arrive at a place where I could look at that as a potential mercy killing if there is ever such a thing and I'm not sure there is but um, I, I knew, and Dad knew, and you knew from the phone calls that Kev was suffering. Now, throughout this whole thing, and I got to tell you that when the two cops knocked at my door and I called that detective and, 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 and you know, these are people I don't like to deal with. These are people I hope to never have to deal with again because the only time you're ever dealing with, they ain't coming over to tell you about rainbows and sunshine, I can tell you that. In, in, they have a way. They have a way about themselves that uh, other people might call callous or cold or uh, icy. Um, but it, it, there is truth to becoming desensitized by things that would otherwise shock people. And, and your reaction t- tends to become, to some people, offensive that you're not upset or that you don't think this news is, is effective meaning it's affecting people and 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 I got to tell you the medical examiner was the same way so you know the dude that played Dexter man nailed it and not because not because he had to act that way because he was a serial killer like they're like that but I God bless the medical examiner and God bless the detectives because you know you want an answer you're going to get it. So, you know, block one ear if you don't want the whole truth. So again, I had reported that dad, it appeared, that, and that's why I used that language, because that's what it appeared. And a couple days after, um, after this incident, the detective calls me again and says, hey, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to release the death certificate because the medical examiner is unsure of what happened in that house. 
And that's, that's incredible to me. Uh, I was shocked by that. I said, well, what do you mean? Because he was the one, you know, and, and I heard the 911 call. I heard the 911 call that dad had made. And it said, please come. There has been a terrible accident. Two people are very hurt. So, so. And then he read me the note that dad left. And it said, please contact Brian Sobolewski. Please sell the house. He left out all of his, every everything that I, that I would need, he left out and had sent me a week prior. So I got his will in the mail a week prior. And, and again, I was just thinking, hey, this is dad taking steps and, and measures to be organized. The man was unbelievably organized. So when he said he wasn't sure what happened in that house, I said, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, we're not sure who killed who or if anyone killed anyone. I said, well, what, you know, wh why are you thinking that? Like, what, what is leading to that and she says well that's that's what the medical examiner said so they're gonna do a full autopsy and a full blood work makeup to see what we see you know and, and unfortunately ladies and gentlemen if this ever it lands in your lap and you do have a, an estate that ends up in probate and you are an ex-convict and you can't be the ex executor of the will you'll still deal with the long and short form of a death certificate now that long form is what any insurance company, if you had any life insurance, is going to go by. They typically won't take short form. And it's the insurance company that's basically going to say no. Because this, this was a suicide. Suicide. And that is what I learned from the medical examiner. Now, a, a couple days after the, the detective says, hey, we're, you know, we're going to investigate this in the lab a little bit before we make a final determination on what they think happened. The fucking news reports father shoots son and then himself. I reported that for Christ's sake. But, but the fact that it went out on the wire and that it's out there is absolutely outrageous to me. It's outrageous to me that while everybody else, including the people most affected by it, have to sit and wait for a backed up fucking lab to finish their work, the rest of the world can go on and engage in conjecture. And I'm sorry, you know, this is the way it works. I get it. But it, it, it affects me and it hurts me to know that you could go online right now and pull up on that date in the news, that man shoots son and that himself, and it didn't happen. The other time that the detective called me, he says, was Kevin left? Oh, he texted me. <laughs> so this is a couple of days after finding out that this had happened. I still couldn't get into the house because the detective locked up the key to, um, and then put the key in evidence. So he locked up the key to the, he, uh, he locked the house, took my dad's car keys and locked the house and then entered the keys into evidence, which I couldn't get to until that Monday because this happened on a Friday. And so, you know, you're left with a couple of days of just torturous hell of figure, you know, I, not that being in the house was of any comfort. 
as a matter of fact, it was it just made the situation sadder. Um, you walk in and 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 it was just a lonely, lonely, lonely place. That as nice as that house was, and open and, and natural light pouring through, you 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 could it almost had to step around the sadness. It was desolate. There wasn't much decorating. It was bare bones. What the only thing that you know, two men would need that they bought a house. Dad bought a house way bigger than he than he needed. In the hopes that I don't know, maybe. I mean, he did have plans to try to get my my sister to take care of Kev. I mean, my dad was was feverishly scrambling to find somebody that might be able to take over Kev's care when he was gone. Now the fact that my brother decided that he was gonna that for my brother to make this decision is uh, is tough. All of it's been tough, but I didn't have to go through a couple of fucking months thinking that the other scenario was true. I didn't have to do that. How do you sit and settle on? Hey, I, I'm gonna sit and try to process all the fucking feelings around this. And then they come along and they say, oh, no, 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 this is the scenario. This is this is what you have to process. So stop that shit and do this. It's I don't I don't I'm not saying there's somebody to blame here. The medical examiner takes as long as they take. And there's just so much to this that at this point, I feel like a Band-Aid has been ripped off the wound, re-exposed, reworked. And then, you know, now I got to fucking put a Band-Aid over it. And I got to lick this wound for a while. So when that cop texted me, he asked if Kev was left or right-handed. And I said, uh, right, and why? And then he called me and he said that, you know, there's a, there's a question with the blood spatter. That the... And the other thing was the detective told me the barrel of the gun was in Kev's mouth. Jesus. And that there was a flashlight on the barrel of the gun. And that's not something my dad would have done. That's the point where I was like, I, you know, it was a, it was a, a variable that didn't necessarily change my agreeing with the detective who himself over the phone says that it looks like your dad shot your brother and 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 then the detective says well well why would he put the barrel of the gun in his mouth and i had to sit with that for a couple of weeks to to at least get to the point and accept that and i the place that i arrived at was i don't know that my dad would just shoot him in the face this is all fucking awful i told you this episode was going to be nothing good My point in the title today is that there have been several times, at least five, when I lived with Kev and Dad and I spent time with Kev and we would talk. And I would ask him, I'm, you know, why what does it feel like? What is this what are these what do these low blood sugars feel like? What is it what is it like? And uh 
my brother would routinely say, um, you know, when my sugar starts to go low, that's when the really bad feelings come. And it's striking. It's striking to hear somebody that never talked about feelings or wasn't necessarily an emotional person talk about a specific subset of feelings that seem to operate, you know, outside of his ability to process and, and very intellectual explanation for have felt very alone can't remember the last time that guy had a girlfriend it was before prison I mean I don't know I don't know if post prison he had even never been touched caressed or or hugged <sighs> um so when he would talk about the bad feelings I would try to narrow it down and say, well, what type of feelings are they, Kev? Like, well, what are the, is, is it something that they're, you know, is that, do they urge you to do something? Or is it a, you know, I can't sit comfortably in this feeling? Or what? Does it, you know, what was it? And I, I don't think I ever, ever, ever thought of... of it, I thought it would be me first. I thought that I would have committed suicide before anyone in this family because I was so depressed as a teenager, and we all were. But we all it all manifested differently. And and Kev never just never seemed the the type, I guess, if you want to say. But I mean, really, it's not a type. It's a it's a place of despair. It's a place of there's no there's no end in sight. There's no light in sight. I can't find my way out of here. I can't can do this anymore and that's that's the part that I have to sit now and process and figure out how how he could have come to that decision and then for dad to have found it or was he in the house I mean did he hear it and he runs in and then he decides to do what he did Ladies and gentlemen, this is all just a big mountain of shit, and I have a spoon, and I gotta move it. So, after, uh, you know, now I have blood spatter, um, you know, flashlight on the barrel of the gun, gun in fucking somebody's mouth, uh, all these things while the medical examiner is going to take 90 days before they can arrive at the most likely scenario. Ladies and gentlemen, just because this is a science and just because a blood spatter expert and the medical examiner both did their work and both came to the same conclusion doesn't make it right. It makes it as statistically likely as possible, but no one will know whatever happened in that house. And that's, that's what I'm, I'm sorry. That's what my brain will continually churn and churn and churn and churn and churn to try to, I guess, make sense of the senseless. I don't know what those bad feelings were for Kev. I don't know what it was like to live in his head and to, and to experience that level of heartbreak and, and that level of prison time. It changes you. Kev wasn't... You know, he didn't go in super healthy. And this is just all fucking incredibly sad.
Um, so uh, it is my hope now we can lay to rest what happened because we have the most likely scenario now based on multiple experts and multiple people all kind of scratching their heads initially and then you know the science told us what likely happened and it all fucking sucks on a lighter note ladies and gentlemen uh I am I am doing another sentence to stand up show uh, on July 9th of this year. I actually got that room to do shows in um, once a quarter. So I'm gonna start uh, start hopefully gearing up and start pushing out some cool live comedy and some cool recordings for you. I'm still trying to get the rest of the first sentence to stand up show onto this platform, but for some reason, every time I try to put the video into anchor it doesn't work so i keep i want to keep trying that so you have something to listen to after this mess the bad feelings uh you know i i got kev sitting in the back seat of the mustang i got kev's mustang it was a shit show to register this thing ladies and gentlemen i don't know what's going on at the dmv but there's not you know and, and i'm sure they don't run into this scenario very often but, you know, you bring them, you know, I bring them the title of the car that dad signed and I fill in all the information and I have a copy of a certified copy of the will because I won't take a copy of the will. And these are the things that I found out in the last appointment a month prior because you can only get an appointment a month out because the registry is still following COVID guidelines and you can't just show up at a registry, get a number and hopefully get your shit done. You got to get an appointment and they're six weeks out. And the first time that I went, I was trying to uh, transfer the title of the infinity. And, and, oh, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. It's not signed. It's not this. It's not that. And I was like, shit. But the, the Mustang title was signed. Now, uh, probably a week before this happened. Maybe two weeks before this happened, as I already knew, I already knew dad was organizing his will and it didn't raise any red flag to me because never in a million years did I see this coming. Dad called me out of the blue and said, hey, you want the Mustang? I think I told this already, but I was like, what do you mean? And Kev was in the background. I could hear him sort of grunting. Or, and, you know, occurred to me that, you know, Kev said, probably you might not want it. And I, of course, said yes. I'm not an idiot, and I have it now. I got, I got the, I finally got it registered in my name, titles in my name, and I think, I think the best place for Kev, the happiest he would be, is sitting in that backseat as I take little cruises. Uh, it is part. I think he bought it with part of the inheritance my mother gave him. So, uh, car means a lot. You know, I got, I got a lot riding in this thing, and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion in it. There's a lot of emotion. I've never in my life driven a car that I was emotionally attached to. That when I look at it, it it, it only brings up fond memories. So that's what I got for you, folks. Uh, I, I'm gonna. 
I don't I don't have any specific stand up for you this week. I do it every week, but this week was uh I don't know, wasn't it was a good set. But you're gonna just start hearing material over and over again. I will try to put the sensitive stand up stuff up, but if not, I'll get that up another week. Thank you so much for listening to episode thirteen. Um I'm gonna try I'm gonna really try to put the sentence to stand up part three up that you haven't heard. I mean you won't be lost if you don't hear the first two, but um you know, and the other thing is go back. Please go back and listen. Listen to those recordings. Dad is is memorialized in 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 season one and in season two. He, he reappears in season two, I think. Uh and I think I might have played a call in season three, but it was boring as shit. But hey, you know, if there's anything that, that anyone out there wants to do, man, chuck a couple of hundred bucks to a suicide prevention hotline or or to ducks or, you know, any anything that might help somebody that needs it more than than you think you do. And that that could that would be the greatest gift that you could give to this situation, which is what I did with the show money for the first show. I donated the money. I will do that for every show. Um, if I make money, um, and fuck it, if not, (laughs) that's all I got for you guys, uh, stay tuned, and, uh, I'll talk to you next week. (laughs) Oh my god, there's so many people waiting for this elevator right now, (laughs) but, um, what do you want to know about the robberies? Yell something out. Give me a question about, about 22 stores. Were you armed? In... What's your secret? That's a that's a great question. Was I armed? Okay, let me talk to you guys. My brother was 6'4", 250 pounds. Okay, my dad was 6'4", 220 pounds. I'm 5'9", I'm uh, 110 pounds. <laughs> so when my brother goes up to you and asks you for all of your shit, you give it to him. <laughs> if I go up to you and ask you for all of your shit, you're gonna be like, I think I can take you. <laughs> no. So the gun was motivation. We were all armed. Every single one of them. What else? What do you got? You raised your hand, and that was fantastic because she just yelled it out. Fuck, did you go to school, Brooklyn? Go. I, I mean, I think the obvious question is how did you get away with it for so long? Um, the police are dumb. <laughs> no, I, I, listen, can we just give a round of applause to police? Yeah. We'll get to you. Um, <laughs> listen, police, I, I very much want to believe that the police are very much the hero that we want them to be, but police have to be every bit the shitbag that they're trying to catch. So in my experience, when I sit and I look at you know cops kneeling on somebody's neck, I, I have seen the other side of that blue wall, ladies and gentlemen. I have seen the issue. There have been multiple times that uh, when they came, when they arrested me and then they searched my apartment, I had a pinky ring. <laughs> Who here's got a pinky ring? Seriously, where's your vet part? <laughs> I had a pinky ring with a diamond in it. I had a gold watch. I had a necklace. I had a bracelet. None of those were recovered after they went through the house. So the cops took it. My dad was arrested with five thousand dollars in cash. That was never put on any evidence. The cops took it. I will call 911 when the shit hits the fan. 
because there's really no other number. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I gotta tell you that they scare the shit out of me. They really do, because there are some pretty bad ones out there. And I'm gonna give you an example. I was driving with a friend of mine who was an ex-con, and he was known throughout the, the city that we were in as a troublemaker. He blew off a stop sign. He didn't blow it off, he rolled through it. And you guys do that here, this is fly, right? You guys laugh because you're like, no, you don't have to stop at those. No, fuck you. The cop pulls him out and starts having a conversation and my buddy starts giving him attitude right away. So the state cop pulls out his baton, boom, right in the side of the knee, takes him down, starts hitting him. Guy's like, stop! Cop says, do you want me to slow down or stop? That was the lesson of the cop. Wow. Yeah, I'm sorry, you guys are horrified by that. That's hilarious to me. <laughs> I laughed my ass off with that. But getting caught is a matter of uh, ego, absolute ego. So if you listen to the podcast, I actually have my dad on the podcast. I do recorded phone conversations with him, and we talk about each robbery, and he can give you his perspective. My perspective has always been, oh my God, uh, we did this, we did this, for, um, I guess, Robin Hood reasons. We were always going after somebody that was dirty and we were trying to save somebody. That's always how we spun it. But at the same time, when you do it 22 times, you start to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Did the Galleria of Jewelry really fuck people over? I don't think so. So I do feel that, that we were somewhat manipulated, my brother and I, to doing this. And when I say we were manipulated, I mean my brother, because they didn't need um, look at me. I look like I'm in the recreational phase of a meth addiction. <laughs> I was serious, I went to the mall the other day and I started trying on clothes and it turns out, man, nothing fits me. I'm a smedium. <laughs> like, I can't find shit, man. And you're laughing because you know. They do that. All right. What else? We're going to do one more. Robbery. We're talking about the robbery. You guys want to hear about our best robbery? Yeah. 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 Okay, I'm gonna do it real quick. The best robbery that we did was the Burlington robbery. So we had already done two. And when I say we had already done two, my dad did one before my brother and I. So we were presented with the whole robbery scenario by my dad as, hey, I've never done this before, can you help me? But it turns out my dad did it before. He tried to rob a guy in a mall. So the guy was there to meet him. He was carrying a bunch of jewelry with him. He was bringing a suitcase into the mall. My dad walked up to him, dressed as a security guard, maced him. The guy fell onto the bag. My dad couldn't get the bag away from the guy, so he left. <laughs> On his way home, he's like, hey, you know who I should get to do this to? My son. <laughs> and I flat out ask him in the podcast, why didn't you involve us? Why did you involve us in this? And he says, well, who else am I gonna trust? Right, so are there any parents in here? Parents? <laughs> How many of you have thought of robbing a jewelry store with your kid? <laughs> if you weren't thinking it before tonight, how many of you are thinking of it now? <laughs> Phil, come on. <laughs> Mikey's right, Mikey's right. Um, so the best robbery we ever did was, let me understand, I'm just gonna give you a quick synopsis of the jewelry trade at the time. So there were tons of mom and pop places, so the Galleria of Jewelry wasn't there. It wasn't chained. Mom and pop places, and they were companies that would bring an import and export jewelry into the company. There were four of them. One of them was Citra. So they had a whole catalog full of jewelry. They would send out salesmen with a full uh, trunk load full of their product line. Those were the guys we went on. So for this scenario, we needed a store. 
We needed to have a store that we were setting up. We're going, hey, we're going to fill it with Julie. We're going to use your product line. Come to the store. But he wouldn't trust us because we were men. Right, ladies? <laughs> okay, that was half-hearted. <laughs> um, we needed a female to get the guy comfortable, so we used my dad's girlfriend. Can I tell you the thing about this whole thing was how easy it was to get people to do it? Like if I came up to you right now and I said, hey, I got a foolproof plan to rob an armory car. You in? <laughs> You're so fucking full of shit. <laughs> in one of the robberies, we had a hockey mom. Like I was like, she's never gonna do it, Dad. She, he had just started dating her. And she's like, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> Not only that, but she fucking cleaned the store out, man. She was the one in one of the robberies that got the only rookie card of Michael Jordan from the store. It was the biggest thing that we got from it because it was a shitty store, but we needed people to, to get the person to trust us. So we had to get a fake store from it. Do you know how hard that is? Could anyone here go and rent a store right now with cash and a fake ID? No, you can't do it anymore. You know why? Because of us. <laughs> we, you're welcome. <laughs> Knowing that we needed a fake storefront, me and my brother said, well, we're never gonna do this. Dad will never figure it out. But then he came home one day and he goes, I got a store. <laughs> what the fuck? How do you do that? How, you, you have to give some sort of license or whatever. He's like, no, the guy took cash first and last month, right? And we got a store. It was in Burlington, Massachusetts. Anyone here from Burlington? Good. <laughs> so we rent this store and we have this guy on his way there. So I'll describe the store. In front of the store, two windows. We had some cases back here and there was a wall, but it wasn't a full wall. It was just a wall that separated the front from the back. Then in the back was this whole back office where me and my brother were gonna wait. My dad was gonna stand in the front pretending he was measuring carpet. The guy was gonna come in. My dad was gonna go behind him, push him to me and my brother. I was going to tape him to a chair. Who did that? <laughs> She's been taped to a chair. <laughs> so I got to tell you guys, as soon as I got this assignment, I was like, what the fuck? How do you tape someone to a chair? My dad says, just use duct tape. Right? Logical. I look on the, the thing of duct tape, and there's no instructions on how to duct tape anything. And I was hoping, and this was before Google. So I was thinking to myself, you know, it would be helpful if the makers of duct tape gave us some sort of scale. I'm not saying tell me how much tape it, ta it takes to tape a human to a chair, but tell me how much it takes a squirrel, and I'll do the math. I'll say, okay, if we're just, all right, all right, it takes this much, but when it came time to do the job, okay, the job was get the guy into the back, we grab him, push him into the wall. I had to get his gun. I had to put him in the chair, tape him, and my brother was gonna hold the gun, okay? He comes in the store, everything goes fine. We put him in the back, I get the gun. The gun was buttoned in his back pocket in a holster. It would've taken 25 minutes for him to get to them. He would've been like, yeah, fuck you, I'm gonna shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> they put him in the chair and I start taping. I not only taped this son of a bitch to the chair, I taped tape so that if he pulled on that tape, it would pull on another piece of tape. <laughs> My dad had to tap me on the shoulder to get me to stop. <laughs> it was the same tap I got from my ex-wife whenever I couldn't hit that spot. <laughs> you guys know the spot that I, yep. come on, come on up, let's wrap this up. <laughs> 
But the worst part of this job, now, and I'm gonna bring the improvers back up. Uh, give them a hand, by the way. That We have Alex and we have Casey, all from Doghouse Theater up in Delray. Woo! Yep. Friday and Saturday nights, they do shows up there, guys. This is where we have developed this concept. I'm hoping to someday take it on tour. The tour right now is Boca. <laughs> <laughs> Just right here, like this is the tour. Woo! By tour, I mean I'm gonna walk around the room later and talk to someone. Like that's the tour. But uh, I, it is my it is my wish that, that to do something with this story um, because it's so sensational. And, and my first year that I wrote the book, I traveled to high schools. And for those of you that don't know, high schools are in dire need of people that can come and talk to them about issues that they're facing. Because so many teachers can't tell their own story. They can't be like, yeah, I trained like a motherfucker. I'm all <laughs> So they have to they have to maintain a certain you know amount of privacy. So they love it when somebody can come in and talk to them. In my first year that I went to schools in Massachusetts, I got recruited by 16 schools. Wow. That's how fucked up your kids are. No. <laughs> you guys think your kids are safe. And it was in Lexington, Massachusetts, guys. It's mostly Asian. I don't mean to be racist. Well, I do mean to be racist, fuck you. Uh, but it's such a prestigious school that um, a lot of people from China are just sending their kids there. And they have a big drug problem, and they have a big bullying problem, and they have, so if you think it's socioeconomic, it isn't. The richer schools are worse. Those public school kids are like, no man, I'm getting out of here. Fuck you, no, I'm getting out of here. The, uh, the upper echelon schools are like, dude, I have so much pressure, give me that coat. <laughs> the last time I did this type of thing was in front of 1,500 students. 1,500 students, and I usually do a Q&A, and one little girl, some shy little girl, raises her hand and she says, what, was, what were you most afraid of in prison? I was hush, and I said, being this cute. <laughs> <laughs> but before the Burlington Robert, before, before the victim ever got there, before I ever got to tie him to a chair, my brother was playing with the gun that he had. Okay, my brother had a nine millimeter. Uh, my brother was also a type one diabetic. Anyone, any type one diabetic here? All right, it's a shit show. Okay, my brother, when his sugar would go low, turned into what I would call the giggling hulk. Meaning he refused the cure for what would bring him out of it. And during the time that he was in it, he would kick the shit out of you while he giggled. So imagine the hulk just laughing while he kicked you. So he would literally be like, yeah, I don't want the sugar. <laughs> It hurts worse, guys. <laughs> so that's part of the reason why for every one of the 22 robberies, I had Jolly Ranchers in my pocket. <laughs> so if the cops ever caught us, they'd be like, okay, he's got a gun, he's got a gun. Oh, Jolly Ranchers, <laughs> But my brother's playing with the gun, this nine millimeter, and he hits this little switch, and the whole fucking thing falls apart. I don't know a lot about guns, I don't know why it happened, but the thing fell into pieces. To the point where the spring, which I'm pretty sure is important, <laughs> rolled across the floor. And right then, phone call, guy's on his way. I'm like, Kev, just throw the fucking gun in there. <laughs> but, but here's the kicker to the whole story, guys. We were, my, brother, my dad and I were so paranoid about my brother's sugar going low because he got violent. We were worried that he'd be the one.